This is an ABC podcast. Andrew Bow wasn't an obvious guy to rise through the ranks of the Australian legal world. His family came from Burma when Andrew was four, and there were none of the family or old school tie connections that ease many legal careers. But Andrew's legal work has been front page news ever since he took on a client named Ivan Malat. To that defendant, he brought the same intensity he brings to every case. However horrendous the charge, the principle of innocent until proven guilty applies. In his new book, The Truth Hurts, Andrew has written about 12 of the cases he's been involved in over the last 30 years, the ones that wouldn't let him go, either because the human stories were so tragic or because the legal system failed so badly or because he himself wasn't able to live up to his own ideals. And a warning that the details of these cases may be distressing. And for our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, please be aware that the first names of deceased will be used. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Sarah. Nice to speak to you. Andrew, you you came to Australia from Burma at just four. Do you remember being on the aeroplane? I do. My my memory is sitting at the back row of a BOAC 707 dressed in um, handmade suits that my father thought we needed to wear and uh, landing on a hot uh, Brisbane airport. Handmade suits for you and what your four brothers, that must have been quite a sight. What did yours look like? Beautiful. I've described it as a Prince Wales check, but it's probably not that. It was. I remember it, it is, in fact, with very small micro checks of black and grey. You know, I'd really love to be able to to find that uh, fabric again and one made because it, it it is a really beautiful fabric. And and was it suits with shorts or or the full long pants? Uh, the full the full thing, the full and uh, <laughs> uh, and little little clip on braces that kept them up. And and you were four. So what what were the ages of your other brothers? Uh, well, I'm the fourth child, so my oldest brother uh, must have been about eight, and the next one seven and the next one five and a half or so then me and then the toddler that was about two i know it's funny my father felt a real need for us to assimilate into a western culture and he traveled quite a bit and the and the the reason why i'm called andrew and not my my birth name is that coming up to the counter at customs in those days children traveled on their parents passports so we didn't have passports but on the entry stage, the officer asked my father, whose name was Shan Bo, and uh, in Asian language, the family name goes first and the, uh, the the person's name goes second. So his name was Shan Bo, my name was Shan Lone. But he he quickly thought, I'd better anglicise all of these people, and uh, he called us John Charles Patrick Andrew Reginald straight away. <laughs> and I happened to, happened to be called Andrew Bo, and that's how I got my name. Oh, my goodness. And what about your mum? Was she dressed up as well? Yes, she was, but she was in her Burmese finery, which is this beautiful silk-woven longis, which is like a a hoop skirt. And I still remember her having what they call danaka, which is like a sandalwood sunscreen that women wore to give moisture and protect them from the sun. So uh, she looked very Burmese. The the boys and my father looked uh, very Western. What kind of life had your family lived in Burma? 
Uh, my father was the proprietor of the national newspaper, so it was a very privileged life. And he'd, he'd travelled a lot. And we lived in a compound with with lots of, you know, drivers and cooks and, and, and the like. So it was an extremely privileged life, frankly, in, in terms of Burma. And Burma has a very rich history, which was interrupted by Enel Ne Win, who came in with military rule in the early 60s. So there was a huge change. I mean, I've, I've been back many times, but the Burma that the world sees now bears no relation to the extraordinary luxury and cultural depth that Burma has been for many, many centuries. And is that why your family left, Andrew? Was it because of the, the change in politics? Yes. Well, Nguyen uh, was a brutal despot, you know, and he tried to, he, he nationalised all the industries and he tried to have my father be his propaganda piece. And uh, my father just knew the writing was on the, was on the wall. I mean, one of the frustrations I expect for many people who make the brave decision to, you know, transplant their family in, in, in search of a better life for their children is they give up a lot of what they had already achieved. I mean, you can just imagine, just say if you and your family had to make the decision to leave and go to a country that didn't recognise your qualifications and didn't uh, recognise anything that you could do, and so he was. He felt very um, emasculated by the whole process of the sacrifices that he had made personally to give up everything he'd achieved in order to obtain some education for his children. So when they arrived in Brisbane, what kind of work did your dad find here? Well, mostly menial. You know, he, he, he knew a lot about uh, lithography. So he did have a job for a long time in a cement plant where they printed the cement bags. And uh, in addition to that, to supplement the income, uh, he worked as a sous chef in a suburban Chinese restaurant. But most of his working life in Australia was very much doing work as a blue-collar worker. Where did your parents find for, for you and, and your family to live once you arrived? Well, there's a, an Australian businessman that he had met in Burma. So he organised uh, for that fellow to find a house near a school. And that was the only <laughs> requirement really given. But we ended up in Biranda, which is, uh, you know, not far from Wollongabba in Brisbane. Uh, very, very, in those days, working class. Uh, a very small little worker's cottage next to a railway line. And, and tell me more about what the house and garden looked like from the outside. Well, he was very handy, so he wanted to renovate it in the way that it could accommodate the five children. It was a two-bedroom house. So, you know, the front veranda was closed in and that made room for two. Um, downstairs, you know, we had to lay all the best of bricks to fill it in and uh, the bathroom upstairs was removed downstairs but never finished and I got that room. And uh, the outside was salmon pink, which was, you know, the colour on sale that summer, you know, um, the colour nobody wanted to paint the house with. That was our house. And were you given the job of, of helping do that painting, you and your brothers? We were marshalled around like foot soldiers to, to do everything from a very young age. Um, I mean, you can think back to it with a degree of romantic <laughs> appreciation but at the time you know we, we always had jobs to do we were not allowed much spare time from the moment he got home and even when we were away we had a list of things we had to do what about 
inside the house. Tell me about your mum's cooking. What was her routine in the morning? Oh, extraordinary. I mean, I, you know, I'd like to think that I'm a, an okay cook, but I, it all came from just having to help her. Like uh, she would have these old um, modern pestles and these tin um, uh, black bottom pots in which really every day was the same routine. It would be chopping up the onions, the chilli, the garlic, getting the coriander from the garden and making the basic base for a Burmese curry, which is, for those who don't know Burmese food, the staple is the the curry, if you like, and it's a very oily stock base rather than coconut-like Thai, and there would just be a different a different protein you know, that they could afford and they'd be rationed out and there'd be bags and bags of rice. So she would do that every morning. Of course, and the, the house must have smelt amazing, Andrew, those chilies and ginger and, and all those spices. Yeah, we didn't think so. You know, like there was always the dried fish that was hanging <laughs> up. Uh, there was, uh, there was you know, we, you know, I have to admit, I was very self-conscious of what I can now call poverty, but at the time I didn't see it that way. We... We didn't really go out to many other people's houses or we never went out, ate outside. So, But I really felt self-conscious because the front steps had been removed to make way for the bedroom. So the only entry into the house was the back step, which you had to go past the outside toilet. And then the kitchen was the first room. So it was, it was a matter about which I was extremely self-conscious and really not wanting any of my school friends to come to until I was much older. But, you know, when they came, when we were older, the thing that you described how exotic it was was the thing that brought lots of people to the house, you know, but it was the very thing that I was most self-conscious of. Did your dad cook as well? Yeah, he was a showman and the dishes he cooked were the really exotic Burmese dishes which are put on at weddings or, or you know, big celebrations. So, you know, there was a beautiful dish called Onokosware, which is a, a like a chicken laksa noodle dish. That would be his, uh, his go-to meal. But the other thing was Mohinga, which for anybody that's been to Burma, it's sold on every street corner, which is a very, it's a mackerel fish paste which is very pungent very spicy in which you put chopped coriander fresh onion boiled eggs noodles and 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 to me you know it's the most luxurious dish that you can get in burma as you and your four brothers were all trooping off to the local school were you a bit of a gang did you hang around together uh, we were certainly a gang in the eyes of others because can you imagine, you know, in those days primary school went to year seven and there were at one stage four at the one primary school and uh, each of my brothers were extremely athletic I and mean, I was okay but that they were, you know, very adept at cricket and soccer which was the two sports and so in that sense we were, we were a big presence in that school. We were probably, aside from Indigenous people, the only, you know, foreigners or brown people, if you like, that were there at the time in the late 60s. What did your dad want for you and your brothers after you'd finished school? He, he really thought that we were, we were going to become a corporation. He wanted us to all, all be parts of his grand plan to, to take over Australia. You know? <laughs> the five bow brothers we're going to form a, a world dominating corporation I, 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 for sure you know that would have been and he would have liked each of us to have different skills in that regard you know so um 
he, he ran the house like a corporation. I mean, there was a, it was very well known in, in our circles that uh, he had a blackboard at home um, which, which covered a whole wall or at least the top half of a wall in which the, the slogan at the top was everybody does everything. And uh, on there he would teach, you know, he would teach various things and he created a list of things which he called articles of association and he would do article one to be a very happy family, article two to help each other. Article three, to please each other. Now, article four, to find ways and means of making life for the family better, all those sorts of things. And article 16 was mind your own business. You know? so, so these were like these, family these, rules that he'd, he'd developed himself. Well, yes, but all, it also reflected, I guess, the Buddhist chants that um, Buddhists and Burmese people do when they, when they, when they pray. You know? uh, it, and in fact, you know, because he was very devout, we as children were required every morning to go and pray and recite our Burmese prayers, then we would have to come out before every meal and repeat them by kneeling in front of him. And at the end of that Burmese chant, he would make us recite those articles of association, then do the same to my mother, but a shortened version of it. Wow. And I mean, you must still have them right in your memory into adulthood. I guess when you memorise stuff like that as a kid, it's it's always going to be there just in your consciousness. Yeah, it's either there because uh, you've wrote, learned it or because it's a certain trauma. In but by the time, you know, by the time we became teenagers, it became article one of articles, it became just a, a blurb before we could run to eat, you know. It's funny, you know, a bit like enforced any religious mantra, I don't think as a child you actually engage with what's actually being said. Uh, for the enduring things for me are the enormous respect he expected that we had for elders, and in particular parents and, he, and our, our mother, and secondly, the discipline associated with abiding to a framework within which to live appropriately within the household. But as you can imagine, you know, five of us often would go up to the prayer room and be having the hugest pillow fights, close the door and come back as if we had recited these things, you know. So I think really by osmosis and upon reflection, these things may, might mean something. So in the, in the vision of this family corporation of the five Bow brothers, what role were you supposed to have? What was going to be your position? Uh, he he had decided very early on that I would be the lawyer, and which is curious, isn't it? I mean, um, it's probably because I'm just stubborn. I've always been a bit stubborn, and others, you know, will use uh, less flattering description. But I I always thought it was necessary to say what I thought, and uh, and and perhaps even say on behalf of others when I saw that something uh, was not being properly understood or interpreted. So uh, that was my role. So when you left high school, did you go straight into law school? No, no. I mean, I, I struggled through my last year at school. Um, I was very fortunate. I had a very beautiful math teacher, uh, Mary Raft. I think she goes by the surname of Mary Procuda now, her married name. She took me under... Uh, her wing and made a big effort to try to um, assist me to assimilate more because you've got to remember until, you know, 17, 18, we, we rarely ate out and when we ate at home, it was communal. We always ate together. We ate with our hands, which is the way Burmese eat rice and curry. 
So I had very little understanding of even table etiquette, you know, and uh, Mary, bless her, um, I mean, she, on my 17th birthday, took me out to dinner at this exquisite French restaurant and she walked me through how to eat, you know, what an extraordinary thing. But she told me one thing that has always stayed with me. She said, look, you don't have to be in a hurry. You will have time to do what you're going to do. And I remember I didn't sit my math two final exam and that really affected my tertiary entrance score. And she really told me not to worry, you know, about those things. But I was very lost, I mean, at that stage. Why, why didn't you sit that exam, Andrew? What had happened? Um, you know, there were so many expectations of, of us educationally, and uh, and I was very good at maths. I went on and studied maths at university. I think I was just overwhelmed by by the fact that, you know, you, you would have to go on and do stuff, you know, and I just didn't have the emotional strength at the time to do it. But I didn't gain enough of a tertiary entrance score to get immediately into law. Uh, so I started studying uh, English and math. And, and what were you doing to make money? Oh, gosh. Um, I uh, filled shelves at Coles supermarkets at night. I uh, worked in a fruit shop since I was about 12 and, uh, and also you know, waited at uh, restaurants, at Chinese restaurants. You, you did end up getting a job as a, a clerk with a commercial lawyer. What did the legal world look like in Queensland back then? If I went into a typical office, what would I have seen? It was a sea of white and sea of male white, uh, very well-dressed, very, when I think back, very entitled cohort. I mean by the people my age, the older people were... were were just completely foreign to me. I mean, I, I don't know for sure, but I suspect that there were very, very, very few brown people in the legal profession back then. Um, I certainly didn't come across any, and very, very few women. Andrew, after you were admitted, you set up your own criminal practice in West End in Brisbane. Why did a, a young Aboriginal man and his aunt come and see you in 1990? My vanity knew no bounds back then and I was very vocal about how good I was and that may have had an impact upon you know, the prison community and I think I became the go-to person for legal aid cases, in particular for Indigenous people and uh, the, the, the aunt had had a, a, a bad experience with the local Aboriginal legal service. It, it had been sort of out and about that he was this angry young man that was, you know, fighting the good fight. Um, so that's why they came to my door. He'd been charged with a rape. He was only, you know, a late teenager and, uh, uh, and I had never undertaken a criminal case. And, of course, I portrayed the the image that, you know, here I was in my Xenia suit and the Rolex watch, you know, very large unit in mobile phone. I was giving every appearance that I was a successful uh, lawyer, but in fact, I'd never done a criminal trial ever. You had had some experiences not completely dissimilar to this young man's though. He was walking home from a park early one morning and was picked up by a police car what experience had you had as a young guy in Baranda of being picked up by the police? Yeah. My younger brother uh, was uh, at soccer training and in those days parents didn't drop off kids to sporting events. You know, you got there as you did, or well, certainly our family didn't have uh, 
parents running around dropping kids off at those sorts of activities. And and that was about three or four kilometres away. And one of my tasks was to, you know, go and get him after after training. And it was, you know, early evening. And I had um, rugby shorts on and a T-shirt and ran off to go and, and get him. I was running along the road and a police car just angled in front of me and basically manhandled me into the car. And you know, in, I could hear the, the police radio where they were saying, we've got him, we've got him, you know, um, we've got this darkie, blah, blah, blah. And and and, uh, and the talk was saying, you know, what, what have you done? Where have you been? We know you did it, et cetera. And I was absolutely gobsmacked. I mean, I, I, I might have even been in first year university. I can't remember exactly. It would have been either year 12 or first year university. And that went on for about 35, 40 minutes. And all of a sudden, there was a message saying, Look, we've got him, we've got him. So they just pulled to the side of the road and just left me out. By that time, I was about 10 k's away from where my younger brother was training. And I got out of the car and I had to run really quickly to pick up my younger brother. And uh, had it not been that I became a lawyer, it probably would have been a memory that I would have forgotten. But it reminded me how vulnerable we are when you're the other in the eyes of policing and how, you know, even though I had a great sense of myself, I was absolutely unable to negotiate anything in that dynamic. So it has stayed with me when stories have been, or instructions have been given to me by people with similar experiences, how disempowered you are and how, how much advantage those in authority who can impose summary authority use it to their advantage. So you'd had a kind of personal experience that I guess made you sympathetic or at least open to hearing this young man's account of what had happened. How did things actually go in the courtroom, though? You have, you say, a lot of bravado. You had the right suit. You had the right watch. But had you enough experience to be able to, to argue that, that man's case in court? Well, I didn't argue. We had a barrister. But I, I, had, I barely knew which side of the bar table to sit at. You know, I had received the material, so-called the police brief. I'd skimmed through it. I'd given it to the barrister, a barrister, to to do the trial with the full expectation that the barrister would come back to me and say, well, you need to do this, this and this, take these instructions, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, on the Thursday or so before the trial was to start, the barrister's secretary rang me and said, look, you know, X can't do this case now, but we have got somebody else that will do it. He rings me up and says, look, I've read it, it's fine, we're ready to go. And I just didn't have the wherewithal to work out, was this how it was done, you know? And the trial was a nightmare and it's a matter about which I have great shame, you know? And as a result, he was convicted and I never got instructions from him as to whether the issue was identity or consent and um, he was convicted. And... And uh, that searing look that the aunt gave me as uh, he was sentenced has really knocked me around. And for about at least a week or two, if not more, I was reconsidering. I just had thought, well, there's no way I can do this sort of work. I had no idea and I wasn't going to cope with the notion that my work meant that, you know, teenagers were being sent to jail for nearly a decade. What did you do differently after that? Well, you know... It's very easy to talk the talk, but then to walk it is takes a, a decision, doesn't it, that you're going to actually learn something. And I, I had the benefit of a lot of avuncular support 
from both men and women in relation to legal training at that point. And I accessed people who've gone on to become senior judges in the Queensland profession who who took me under their, you know, I think they could see some sort of spark and enthusiasm about what I was at least saying I could do. And they they basically told me how to, to do work as a criminal lawyer. I'd learnt nothing at law school, you know. I'd, in a sense, bluffed my way through getting pass marks and, and now... I realised I had to show some discipline. So that's what I did uh, and I have tried to do since, which is at the very minimum, read the brief, you know, understand the law, look up the cases, take some instructions, engage with barristers who were committed to the case in a real way, even though most of those cases in those days were legally aided and not were very well paid. So in, in the next five years, I, I just decided to forget about the politicking, just get the basic skills right, something I should have done well before I'd started my own practice because I, I got admitted and within six months I was running my own practice. Um, and how arrogant was that? <laughs> you know, I mean, how foolhardy was that? So I did spend, you know, the, the next half decade or so just trying to get some skills. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Andrew, in your 20s, you were establishing your criminal law practice and you were also starting a family. Tell me about the woman you fell in love with. Jackie was then a criminal lawyer. She was working at the Aboriginal Legal Service and she she is a remarkable woman. She became the first Indigenous judicial officer in Queensland. She still sits as a magistrate now in Cairns. She was, you know, a striking young woman with... At that stage, two children in her care, one a, a boy that she'd really adopted, if you like, who was the son of a client of hers at the Aboriginal Legal Service, and he was Indigenous, and Jackie's Indigenous, and she had also had a young son, Sebastian, um, from a prior relationship. So, I mean, they were grown-ups, I and mean, when I was a kid, you know, in that sense, then, you know, within a very short period of time, you know, we had five kids. How did you handle that logistically? I mean, you're both on the up in your legal careers. I, I just don't understand the sort of management at home that must have been happening. Uh, well, uh, not very well <laughs> upon reflection, but we you know Jackie had her own practice. I had my own practice. We had the financial resources to employ full-time support, not live-in, but full-time nannies. And it was it was crazy, you know, like, you know, can you imagine, I mean, having really five children uh, under the age of 10, getting them off to three different schools, etc., and childcare, you know, it was crazy. And obviously I didn't do it very well. I spent my 30s really not being able to meet that equation very well at all. I failed miserably in many of people's eyes insofar as striking the right balance. But, you know, my distractions uh, were, were mostly my vain idea that I was going to be a shit-hot lawyer. You mentioned Jackie's Indigenous. How were you welcomed by her family? 
Well, Jackie and I are you know, no longer together, but we're extremely close. And that family, I was the only non-Indigenous person. So I had to embrace that culture. And, there's, and, and you learn very quickly how the sense of family and kin is is front and centre of an Indigenous living experience. So, which is sort of equated with my Burmese experience in a sense. And But I didn't quite relate to the notion that I was about the same colour. I didn't see it in that way. My sense was that in relation to our children, we were going to make them as biculturally competent as we could and give them all the skills to be able to relate with the world in which they were brought into. In 1994, you were asked to fly to Long Bay Jail in Sydney to meet a prospective new client, Ivan Malat. What did you know about him? Almost nothing, because one of my first shameful acts as a, as a father in which I separated from Jackie and, and took off overseas. By then, my practice was flourishing. I had two new partners and I was, you know, living an indulgent two or three months in, in Paris and I'd flown back because my father was dying at the time and uh, this phone call brought me to Long Bay. It, it, was, it was just really out of the blue, knew nothing about this man other than what I'd read in a People magazine pictorial about this serial killer. Um, so it was a clean slate for me. I, I didn't come down, go down with any preconceptions of who, 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 who he would be. What was your first meeting like? Well, I do remember a very long line of lawyers on a Saturday morning waiting to go and see him to pitch their their capacity. Uh, I found out later that I was the only one that had been asked to fly down or flown down by the sister. And, uh, you know, I had shoulder length, even longer than that, uh, hair to the middle of my back, very irreverent and cocky, wearing my latest Parisian clothes, a beanie with Mickey Mouse t-shirt on and, and really carrying on with myself as to how important I was. And and uh, he'd been referred to me by a client that I'd acted for in Queensland. So I didn't have to do much pitching. He was an extremely respectful man and he, uh, to the, you know, until I finished acting for him three years later. He, when I was in my 20s and he was in his late 40s and he, he only referred to me as Mr. Bow for the entire time that I acted for him. So he was very respectful, very polite, and I didn't have to pitch and within an hour or so he'd retained me. Why did you want the case? I, it wasn't a thing about wanting. I mean, the idea that there's was a case that had attracted by their national interest was not present in my mind. For me, I'd come back from overseas a little bit more refreshed and he was paying me to do a case. You know, like, you don't, you don't knock back work. Um, really? Seriously? Because to, to a non-lawyer, that just seems extraordinary. You, you, there's not a part of you that's got hesitations at all about taking on someone who's been charged with the kind of crimes that Ivan Milat was charged with? Well, not at all. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, the, the, the thing about the criminal justice system, whether it be here or overseas, is that it's got a couple of basic tenets that have to be adhered to. Firstly is the presumption of innocence. Now, if you're going to be a lawyer working in criminal law, you've got to proceed on the basis that until the detail emerges, you proceed on the basis if somebody is charged, that's an accusation. And so... How can you possibly make judgment against somebody merely on an accusation? We all do, unfortunately, but we, you've got to resist that. For me, it was just the logistics. 
you know, at the time my father was dying, I'd just come back to practice. This was a case interstate. I was separated from my, the mother of my children, my wife, and it was really logistics. Now, within a week or two, my father did pass away, uh, which was a hugely difficult period in my time. And this case provided a distraction, to be frank. You know, I, I convinced myself this case was important and therefore I didn't, you know, give myself the opportunity to grieve and I didn't have to deal with the dysfunctions in my marriage or the responsibilities to my children. So I just jumped into this case almost full time for at least a year or so and um, and really didn't take much interest in what the the detail of the allegations were, that simply that I was going to at least provide the forensic skills that I had at the time to adhere to the principle that he was entitled to a defence from a lawyer that was independent and willing to argue his case. I'm curious, when you take on a case like that, do you spend much time thinking about the victims? It depends. It, it depends in a sense. I mean, I have to admit, I'm not terribly consistent about this issue um, and, and I don't want to be putting my you know, 55-year-old head on a 29-year-old lawyer. I, I always had this problem with sex cases, to be frank. And as a solicitor, I found that very those cases very hard when they involve children. And I found that very hard. And I found the prospect of cross-examining children, which was frequently done in those days until rules changed, etc. I found that very difficult. And I usually used to allocate those cases to barristers rather than doing them myself or to other solicitors in my office. It's only really now that I would uh, have a much more heightened sense about those things. But but it's terribly important that if you're going to work in this space, that you ha you do owe a duty to your client. And if you're not willing to be unaffected by the impact of the alleged offending when you're defending the person, you shouldn't really be doing it. One morning in the midst of the trial, your legal team had gathered in Ivan Malat's cell for a pre-court meeting and you, exhausted, fell asleep. Where were you when you woke up? Oh, sleeping like a baby on his shoulder in the cell. I mean, one of the great things about that case is that I forged lifelong relationships with the other lawyers that worked on the case, the two barristers who have now both come on, gone on to become judges. And we were in the bunker, you know. Um, we were defending somebody that was already convicted by everybody else and we were facing the vast resources of the state and we were on legal aid funding. Uh, so it meant that all of us had to work ridiculous hours. We were all interstate, so we didn't have a, a, a home life that we returned to each day. And sometimes it was exhausting and... We had this early morning conference and I'd had burnt the midnight oil that night and you know, the very serious barristers uh, were asking questions and I just fell asleep. And it was only later that the junior lawyer that was with me woke me up that I realised here I am head cocked on uh, Ivan's, uh, Ivan's shoulder, you know, snoring apparently. Did he always maintain his innocence even behind closed doors? Yes, yes. I mean, he, he maintained his innocence until he died just recently. And for you as his lawyer, when that guilty verdict came through, was that a relief at all? Uh, at the time, 
the jury were out for four days, which was a long time for a case in which many would say the circumstantial evidence was overwhelming. Uh, in those four days, I remember the four of us playing cards you know, for four or five hours at a time, waiting for the verdict to come and going home that night. But and thinking about, for me, I, 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 I was very anxious about the prospect that he would, he might get acquitted. I was equally anxious about the reality that he would likely be convicted and that all that endeavour that we'd spent for many, many years was all, all for naught. But, you know, as I reflect upon it now, what we tried to do, and I think we did do, is gave him an honest defence. We we put the Crown to proof. We, we tested all the evidence with its various strengths and weaknesses, and our lead counsel gave a terrific address to the jury that made them think. So the fact that we were able to do that with dignity was something that was reflected upon by the trial judge at the time. We discharged our brief. So upon reflection now, it was a very educative experience in terms of criminal lawyering. We, we learned a lot. It was one of the first cases where DNA evidence was being examined in a lot of detail. There's lots of issues about pre-trial publicity and how it affected the concept of a fair trial. There's lots of issues about the limited resources for defence lawyers in dealing with these cases. So it stilled me a, a greater sense of the criminal justice system. But, it's in, but it wasn't uh, an experience which I fully understood at the time. You say that one of the things that kept you up at night was that you were anxious that he'd be acquitted. Why? Uh, I just knew that that would would be a bombshell for the Australian criminal justice system. I mean, everybody had him convicted. I still don't have any sense of what it would might might have been like if he was acquitted. Um, it so it been, wasn't it wasn't that you were anxious because you knew he was guilty. No, I didn't make any sort of judgment like that. And to start from the premise that a jury verdict has got to the truth of what occurred in many cases is just a fallacy. I mean, the, the jury trial is a process. It, it's a process in which filtered evidence go in, goes in front of ordinary people to decide whether or not the evidence is sufficient to prove a case beyond reasonable doubt. That's not designed to get to the truth at all. I want to ask you about a case that received a lot less press attention, and that's something that happened in, in 2011 in the Simpson Desert in Western Australia. What had happened there one night? Well, Sarah, it was the, it was the case which prompted me to write, write this book, if you like. And then it involved a very young couple. Uh, they were in their late teens, early 20s, Christiane and Damien, in a town, Kirikara. Now, their people were people who'd walked out of the desert in the 80s, um, and that is the first white contact between an Indigenous community and white, the white world. And it's a place in which there was only about 10 houses. It's 850 kilometres from Alice Springs, and very few white people ever came to that community. And on that particular night, Christiane told you know her family she's going out to have a cigarette and within a few minutes she's uh, hanging in a tree and she she'd hung herself and uh, and after being cut down and 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 put into the refrigeration at the local store her husband came home and by then her family Christiane's family had 
a strong belief that her husband was responsible for this death. And within an hour or so, they formed a posse to go and perform traditional punishment. And that involved, in traditional terms, spearing the person in the leg. But uh, Tristan had no real training about this, and he was only in his 20s. But he, according to his cultural responsibilities, because most of her mob lived quite a way away, he felt he had to take responsibility. And he got a kitchen knife, confronted the husband, Damien, in the middle of the street, and you can just imagine what it's like. The the animating is 44-gallon drums with wood fires lighting up the road, family watching, and they're looking at each other, and Tristan says, you know, uh, which one, meaning which leg? And Damien says the left one. He swings the knife, hits the thigh, thinking that one blow was enough, and unfortunately nicked the femoral artery, and within a few minutes he's dead. I mean, the, the, the extraordinary thing about this case is that there was no alcohol, there was no enmity between these people before, and in fact, you know, within a community of about 50 or 60 people, they were close friends. In fact, the, the punishment was imposed with the consent of the man that ultimately died, and the family were all watching. But he was charged, this young man, Tristan, was charged with manslaughter, and, and I received a brief to do his trial. What was it like visiting that young man who was charged in in prison? What sense did he have of this legal system that he was suddenly caught up in? Yeah, it's um, firstly, um, it's important to remember that he did not speak a word of English and the people who were able to be qualified as interpreters didn't come from his community. So remembering that we had to put his case to a likely all-white jury in Perth, which is about, you know, 2,000 kilometres away from where he had lived all his life. He'd never been to the coastline of Australia. So the cultural differences between him and the criminal justice system were very stark, as they were with me. I had hoped that since we were running a, a case by reference to traditional law, that he would look like your archetypal indigenous, if you like, savage, and I mean use that word respectfully, the idea that a white jury could understand this is another culture. You've got to embrace it to understand it. It's not what you know. But when I, when I met him for the first time, he had a death leopard T-shirt on and an earring, and I was absolutely ashamed that I had a stereotype in my mind. When I was speaking to him and the other lawyer that was with me speaking to him in English, the interpreter basically I mean, I would speak like I am now in long, long passages. The interpreter would interrupt and just say one or two words. It could have been bird calls. And, and you know, the client, all he did was sat there smiling and nodding at me. I am without doubt certain that he had no idea what I was saying to him. Uh, fortunately, what we had was the lawyer that was working with me from the Aboriginal Legal Service had in fact researched and found an anthropologist that had lived and worked in that community for 20 years and he explained why everything unfolded as it did and that allowed us, uh, if you like, it was like the Rosetta Stone to understand what actually happened in that dynamic and to explain it to the jury and explain that he had to do what he did. Now, he didn't intend to kill him but he had to do what he did and it was a compulsion. Was it about revenge? 
No, not at all, not at all. It's about making the person responsible for what they had done. And the best way to do it is to do it immediately and do it in a way where you would mark that person, not cripple, and certainly not to kill them, but they would have a scar to remind them of what they had done, which in this case was more complex because what he had done was negligence. He hadn't done any act that caused his wife to kill himself, but he had neglected the responsibility to keep her alive and happy, which is a beautiful thing in terms of the concept, isn't it, that a man has a responsibility or a person has a responsibility for their partner to keep them alive, and if they, if they haven't met that, they should be punished for falling short in that sense. And so what was the outcome of that? case, Andrew? Well, we were ready to go to trial to face a white jury, but the Crown Prosecutor offered a deal in which the charge was lowered and if we accepted that deal, that is the charge being dropped, we had to plead guilty and she would submit to the court that the time he had served in jail at that time, which was about 10 months, was sufficient punishment under whitefellow justice for that death. And I guess the one part that he understood was that if he accepted the plea, that he would be released there and then. Now, remembering that just because the prosecutor makes a submission doesn't mean that the judge will do the same. So he still had this risk. And fortunately for him, and unfortunately for our aspirations as lawyers trying to create a precedence, he pleaded guilty and he was released the next day. And went back to that community? He did. He went, he, he, look, he had nowhere else to go. And, and as he went back, the one thing he made us realise for sure was he had to go face his punishment in his community for what he had done. Andrew, your eldest daughter is a lawyer. Tell me about her and, and about maybe how you see the legal system changing as her generation comes up. Yeah, well, Greer is a criminal lawyer in in uh, Melbourne. She's got the the burden and the privilege of having a culturally rich background. You know, I'm Burmese. Her her mother is Indigenous, and uh, you know, more recently, I've been asked to get involved in the the police shooting in Yundamu, and the committal is actually happening right now. I've enlisted Greer as one of the lawyers, or one of the four or five lawyers, to be involved in that case. What's your working relationship like? What kind of what kind of boss are you? It's curious, isn't it? I mean, it's terrific. My children are my best and worst critics. You know, they they don't shy away from pointing out all of my shortcomings, and there's enough enough of them for them to have a field day. But I think they're enormously proud of me and and of their mother. And this book has been a very exciting thing for them because you know many of these cases I've never spoken to anyone about. You know, and each of them are extremely proud of that catalogue of cases and it gives them an opportunity to see what I was doing when I should have been at home, you know, helping, frankly. <laughs> Speaking of, of pride, your your dad passed away just as you took on the Ivan Malat case. Was he proud of you by that stage? Had things progressed in your life and your career that I don't know, gave him some reassurance about that huge decision to leave Burma and turn up with his five boys in their little suits at Brisbane Airport? Yeah, but without being too glib about it, I'm, I'm sure he thinks that I uh, at least, you know, should achieve a pass mark. I mean, he, he had huge expectations of his children. And uh, by the time he passed away, I had run my own practice for about four or five years. 
and uh, he knew that I'd taken on that case. In fact, there was a news article as he was laying in his deathbed in hospital which showed my face and, and the fact that I'd taken on the case. So he'd already been quite proud about what I had done. So he might have thought that that he'd, his, his sacrifices had some some worth to them. Even though he's been gone for many years now, do you find yourself still having conversations with him in your head or using him as a standard of, of judgment about your decisions in life or your actions in life? Is he still there in your mind watching on? Well, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Um, uh, we're all traumatised by our parenting and it reflects in how we go on and parent our children. So th- at one level, you know, his austerity is something I think about not showing as much to my children as he showed to us. But in terms of inspiration, of course, you know, how brave it must have been for him and my mother to 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 escape Burma and come here. Whether or not I've done anything worthy of his his approval, well, I'll leave that to others to assess. But I do think about it all the time. I mean, I've, of course I do, you know, especially when I think of my own children. You write about in in the book that there have been times when you've considered giving up the law either because you felt you weren't up to it or because the system just seemed too flawed. How's the balance now in at this stage of your life between the ideal and the reality? Well, the balance is better because I've got a better perspective. In my 20s, 30s and 40s, uh, I had a singular vanity that my work was the only thing that was important in my life. What a huge failing when I think about it. Now I have, you know, beautiful children with Jackie. I've repartnered and there's two more children, uh, not biologically mine, about which I'm having to embrace responsibilities. As I've become more balanced in the way I live my life, I, I find my work far more tolerable. But that's not to say that during the course of a trial or, or a very complex appeal that I'm lost to them um, and I can't quite shake that intensity of work, you know, when I when I have to work. But I'm a, a little bit more sufferable for those around me when I'm working. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that, Andrew, for, for your family's sake but also for yours. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. You're very welcome. Thanks very much. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.